This is the first of five talks by John Sutherland on the Brahma Viharas. He was given at Cerro Gordo Temple, Santa Fe, New Mexico, on July 29, 2009. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. I've been uh, so enjoying this extravagant season <laughs> that we've been uh, having. And so tonight's talk is a kind of a praise song for this summer we have the great good fortune to take part in. One of the ways to look at our practice is that it's about discovering ways that we can not only see the beauty of the world outside of us, to feel this extravagant summer bursting all around us, but to come to know that that same summer is inside of us, that the summer is continuous from outside to inside. And we contain that. We can stand in that garden or that park or that corner of St. Francis and Sirius any time we want to. Um, it's always there and it's the same as what we love uh, in the so-called external world. So one of the um, ways of thinking about finding um, ways to stand in that garden inside ourselves has been called in Buddhism for a very long time the Brahma-viharas, which are the heavenly uh, dwelling places. And there are four of them, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. And over time, we tend to spend a fair amount of time talking about equanimity and compassion and loving-kindness. And for some reason, that's interesting to me and puzzling, not so much about sympathetic joy. Um, And that's the one that seems most interesting and alive to me right now in this, in this summer. So I want to talk about sympathetic joy tonight. Um, that is taking joy in the joy of others. In the same way that compassion is uh, an empathy with the suffering of others, sympathetic joy is an empathy with the gladness and good fortune of others. So, um, one of the fundamental ideas of Buddhism from the very beginning is that we're kind of surrounded by gates all the time, and some of those gates lead to heaven and some of those gates lead to hell. And of course there are external objective circumstances that create gates to heaven and gates to hell. Um, All you have to do is... You know, look at look at what's happened in uh, Iran lately to see this kind of gate of heaven that's sort of started to open for a moment and the, the exuberance of people and the feeling of freedom and then the way that that turned into a kind of gate of hell of repression. So there are these objective circumstances that create gates. And it's also true that day-to-day, you know, absent, um, getting cracked over the head by military police and that kind of thing. In our own lives, most of the time we choose whether to walk through a gate of heaven or a gate of hell. 
And that's what practice is about, is about working with, one of the things that practice is about, is about working with those gates and how we choose to walk through them or not. So, with sympathetic joy, I want to I speak about it in kind of three different aspects. The first is, I'll call them, local sympathetic joy, which is really the simplest form. And that's when um, someone comes up to you and tells you good news about something that's happened to them. And what happens? You know, what do you notice? Does the, a gate to heaven or a gate to hell open up when that person tells you that news? Um, the gate to heaven is pretty easy to identify. We just feel a sense of openness to their news and gladness for them, gladness for their gladness, and uh, happiness for their good fortune. Often, we'll have a different kind of reaction which opens the gate to hell. And those are, you know, whatever the whole spectrum is, like, um, gosh, nothing like that ever happens to me, or how unfair she doesn't deserve this. <laughs> I do. Um, or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and therein lies the gate to hell, because all of a sudden we've um, taken this occasion for gladness that we are being invited to participate in, and we've turned it into um, a moment of, of deep contemplation about what's lacking in the world and what's wrong and um, how things are, are out of whack and out of balance. So this is really turning um, gold into straw, you know. And when we do it, mostly if we have any kind of self-awareness, it's painful, too. There's also the feeling of, oh, I can't believe I'm reacting like this, you know. There's that. And so there's a sort of second level of yuckiness about the whole thing. Um, and in a way, when that happens, uh, I think about Linji's uh, take on the, <clears throat> the host and guest. The, the metaphor of the host and guest is one very common in Chan. And you can understand it from the biggest perspective, that, that the universe, that the vastness, um, that eternity is the host, and that everything that rises and falls within that, i.e. ourselves and everything else, we are the guests of that host. <clears throat> so that's kind of the biggest way to look at it. But it's also true, again, at a more local level, um, how we treat each other, how we treat other beings, how we treat the world around us. Do we act as host? Do we welcome things as guests? Not only, again, in the external world, but in our own internal worlds, when we have thoughts and feelings, do we welcome them as guests, or do we um, reject them and push them away? So this kind of unsympathetic reaction, the, the opposite of sympathetic joy, feels like a kind of ghost version of, of Linji's host and guest. He said, if wherever you are, you take the pl- position of a host, then that place will be a true place. And when we have not a reaction of sympathetic joy, but a, re- a spasm of self-concern instead, as Stephen Batchelor would say, um, we, we turn the, the, the host and guest thing on its head. We refuse to act. This is the second of five talks by Joan Sutherland on the Brahma Viharas. 
It was given at Cerro Gordo Temple, Santa Fe, New Mexico, on July 30th, 2009. Good evening, Buenos Aires. Uh, two weeks ago, I started talking about the Brahma Viharas, which means the heavenly abodes or the boundless states, which are uh, um, four kind of good places to be that are shared by all of Buddhism. And, um, and they are loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And um, two weeks ago I was talking about sympathetic joy in, in relation to this incredible summer, this beautiful, exuberant summer we're having. And tonight I thought I'd carry on and talk about another of the boundless states, which is equanimity, um, which was considered the kind of guardian of all of the others, so that equanimity is a foundation for and a guardian of compassion and loving kindness and sympathetic joy. Um, you, you might notice the connection between calling them the boundless states and our own boundless vows, which are the vow we sing at the end of every meeting, the four things we, the four impossible vows we take over and over again, which is the heart of our practice. And the Brahma Viharas were thought of as boundless states because they weren't conditioned, and by that it's meant that most of the, um, the emotional states we get into have causes and conditions. They arise because of certain things or in conjunction with certain things. So they're sort of part of this vast network of causes and conditions of which they're a part. And the sense is that with the, the four Brahma-viharas, they are boundless states. They, they can be unconditioned states, that they don't require certain causes and conditions to, to be present in order for us to experience them. That with dedicated and persevering practice, we can come to find a way in which loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity arise not out of our own states of emotion, not out of our own will or desire, but out of something bigger than that, so that they really um, arise through us and come out of our hands, not generated by us, but um, mostly the work we have to do, at least in our, in, in, in the, in our sense of the Khan's Zen tradition, is to get rid of the stuff that gets in the way of those boundless states arising and flowing through us. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But that's the sense of boundless, not, um, not caused by circumstances and not generated solely by us as individuals. So let me just say a couple of more words about the Brahma-Viharas in general before I take up equanimity and give some of the kind of um, the, the ground out of which they arose. At one point the Buddha said that our practice, our way, is the liberation of the mind, which is love. That's kind of interesting. The liberation of the mind, which is love. 
And um, again, he said, expanding on that idea, um, he talked about something which I think has a, a lot to do with equanimity, a lot to do with what that means. He said, making the whole world of beings the object of our minds endowed with love. So making the whole world of beings, making everything, the, what we think about, what we're concerned about with our minds endowed with love. We will continue to relate to the whole world with minds that are like the earth, untroubled, free from enmity, broad and large, and free of limitations. So the sense that a mind of equanimity is a mind as large and spacious and untroubled and capacious as the world itself, I think is an important one. Um, right away we get the sense that equanimity is not about detachment, it's not about not feeling things or being concerned about things. It's about becoming so big and so spacious and so capacious that we can um, allow for everything without getting overthrown by it. So how do we, um, how do we go about developing this mind as spacious as the world, this heart as big as the world? Um, in another place, the Buddha gives a really great, very simple formulation. He said, abandon the unskillful, cultivate the good. And the thing I love about this formulation is that it immediately takes the prescription for what to do off the good-bad axis. He doesn't say abandon the bad. He says abandon the unskillful. And that does two things. It releases us from the sort of endless sorting discrimination process of what's good and what's bad and um, the tangles we get into when we're focused on trying to divide things up between good and bad and right and wrong and all of that stuff. Instead, he says, abandon the unskillful. So look for what doesn't work. That's what you let go of, which is so obvious, you know, but changes everything. Not don't look for what's bad. Don't try to make judgments about that. Look for what's not working. Look for what's even causing difficulty. So that's the first thing it does, is take it off that good-bad axis, which I think is really important. And the second thing it does is, in order to know whether something is skillful or not, we have to pay attention to its effects in the world around us, its effects on the people around us. So immediately we're pulled out of the, the small room of self-concern. How am I doing? You know, how compassionate am I? How, how filled with loving kindness am I? How, you know, am I failing in all of those pursuits? Immediately pulls us out of that small, inward-turning, tight um, self-concern to what's happening in the world as a result of what I'm doing. What's the effect? Is this working? Is this not working? And making, you know, making our course corrections and trying to do better based on that which I think is, is tremendously important. Okay, so those are the, um, the, the Brahma-Vikaras in general. And um, to talk a little bit about equanimity in particular, I want to talk about it from two perspectives because I think the two give a, a great whole picture. And they're the perspective first of the Theravada, which is the, the earliest 
forms of Buddhism. Theravada means the way of the elders, and it's the Buddhism that developed during right after the during the life of and right after the death of the Buddha. And then um, look at it from another perspective, which is of the Mahayana, which means the great vehicle, which was a development in Buddhism several hundred years later. And um, they, they come at it from different angles that both, I think, are tremendously valuable. And as I say, together make a kind of good and broad and capacious as the world picture of equanimity. So um, in, the, in the Theravada tradition, largely what you're trying to do is um, to overcome negative states with positive states. So equanimity... Um, is, is seen as a, an antidote for uh, prejudice and bias and um, discrimination that causes difficulty. So if the problem is our tendency to have you know, big opinions and make right and wrong and have prejudices against things and biases against things, the antidote in the, in the Theravadan way is equanimity, which is a way of considering all things equally of seeing all things as, um, as, is, as equal in some deep sense rather than evaluating and making judgments about them all the time. So um, we overcome the negative idea of prejudice by cultivating the positive uh, quality of equanimity. And um, another example of how that what might work is um, Many of you may be familiar with metta practice, which is a loving-kindness practice where you um, bring into your meditation other people and yourself as well and offer loving-kindness to them. Well, metta practice was originally taught by the Buddha to a group of monks who had gone deeper into the forest to practice and there were some tree spirits who didn't appreciate their coming deeper into the forest. And so turned themselves into demons and were harassing the monks. And so the monks came back and asked for instruction. And the Buddha taught them metta, love and kindness, as a way of dealing with the, the tree spirits who weren't happy with their presence. So they went back, they started doing metta, started doing love and kindness meditation. And pretty soon the tree spirits joined them and they were all doing metta together. So there's an example of where you take a negative state, a state where the monks were afraid because they were being sort of assaulted by the tree spirits, and you turn fear into loving kindness through a practice like metta. Um, in, the, in the Mahayana tradition, there's a little bit of a, a different um, perspective, which is that things like equanimity are there. They're inherent in our own heart minds and kind of in the fabric of the world. That all four of the Ramaviharas are kind of inherent in the way things are. And that our problem is we get in the way of knowing that. We get in the way of experiencing that. So rather than replacing a negative state with a positive state, the Mahayana suggestion is look for the obstacles that get in the way of your understanding that equanimity is kind of the way things are if you'll just let them be. So we look at the things that prevent us from being equanimous, prevent us from having that, that broad and capacious and accepting view, and we deconstruct those things. And the more we can deconstruct those things, the more open we are to the natural equanimity of our own heart-minds, which connects with the equanimity that is woven into the fabric of the world.
Um, so, in the Theravada tradition, you would do this, you would cultivate equanimity as a way to overcome obstacles in the path toward finding the mind. So, uh, if, if prejudice is an obstacle, then you cultivate equanimity in order to remove that obstacle so that you can come closer and closer to, um, to a, a state of liberation. In the Mahayana, um, the goal is a little bit different. We cultivate equanimity because it tends to encourage bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the desire that arises in us um, for our own liberation so that we can act for the liberation of all beings. We seek enlightenment not only for ourselves, but so that we can um, work for the circumstances that will allow for the enlightenment of all beings. And equanimity is a really good part of that, um, that path toward ours and everybody else's awakening. So, um, one of the stories that, that, that Mahayana Buddhists would tell about, um, about equanimity and, and um, loving kindness and those virtues, the virtues of Brahma Viharas in, in relation to Bodhicitta, is about one of the great Indian figures whose name was Asanga. And um, he went off into a cave to practice for 12 years because um, he wanted to he wanted to bring down Maitreya. Maitreya is the Buddha to come, the next Buddha. And Maitreya is very much connected with loving kindness. Um, the Sanskrit word for that is Maitri, and Maitreya is the sort of the being who loves, who's off in heaven somewhere loving the world, but not here yet. And so Asanga wanted to, by the power of his meditation and devotion, bring Maitreya, bring loving kindness, bring love down into the world. And he did pretty hard practice uh, as a hermit for 12 years, and then he got discouraged. And he realized, you know, it just wasn't going to happen, and he gave up. And as he left his cave and was walking back into, into town, having given up the practice, he saw a dog in the road who was badly hurt, and this immediately raised in him a feeling of great compassion and loving kindness for the dog, and he went over to see what he could do to help. And as he bent down to help this um, wounded dog, Maitreya appeared. And the sense of the story is that it's not enough to do the practice in the cave for 12 years. That the practice isn't realized. We don't bring love into the world until we leave the cave and walk down the road. And, um... <laughs> and confront both the great joy and the great suffering of, of other beings and respond in some way. And it's in that spontaneous response that all the practice is about getting us to, all the practice is about clearing out the obstacles so that loving kindness, compassion, arises spontaneously in us in response to things. It's when that happens in the world, in relationship, that um, Maitreya appears, that we bring Maitreya 
into the world. Um, because in some really important sense, Maitreya isn't a being sitting off in heaven separate from us, but Maitreya is what we bring into the world over and over and over again every time we allow loving kindness, equanimity, sympathetic joy, and compassion to appear in the world through us or to be revealed in the world through us. Um, well, so I'm almost out of time, so I will, keep, I will keep talking about this next week, but I'm trying to think what else I want to, um, to be sure to say tonight. Yeah, maybe, maybe one other kind of um, um, contrast or, or conjunction between the Theravada and the Mahayana views. Um, one of the things that, that equanimity is about is, from the Theravada perspective, is understanding how karma works, understanding your own and other people's karmic responsibility and making distinctions between those. What's mine? What's yours? That, which is a very you know, sophisticated kind of psychological exploration for them to have figured out 2,500 years ago. And so there's, a, there's an equanimity gata in the, in the Theravada tradition, which is, is actually pretty radical. And it goes, um, all beings are the owners of their own karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend on their actions, not on my wishes for them. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. That's a pretty radical statement, and it's, it, you know, I remember the first time I heard it, I kind of went, <clears throat> I don't know, is that true? <laughs> yeah. So, that's, but that's the radical Theravadan position, that one of the things that equanimity does when it prevents us from jumping in where we shouldn't jump in, is it gives us the ability to allow um, karma to work its way out in the way that it should, for, for not to interfere in other people's karma. Um, not to take on karma that isn't ours to. Um, to know what's ours to do, to know what is someone else's to do, and to know what is really the province of those great transpersonal forces that are working in and around us all the time, and that fortunately we have absolutely nothing to do with. We can't muck up. <laughs> so... Um, if, that's a, if that was a really important part of the practice of equanimity in the Theravada and the Mahayana, um, and the Book of Record, which is one of the great koan collections, equanimity is called heart nirvana, which is kind of nice. And the sense of that is that um, a heart full of equanimity has found nirvana. And this is the sense I take uh, of nirvana in this case. The word nirvana, which, which means the blowing out of something, like the blowing out of a candle, um, is usually taken to mean kind of the extinction of all of the obstacles and obstructions and obscurations and karmic entanglements and stuff that causes us to suffer and causes us to cause other people to suffer. All of that just blown out like a candle. That that's nirvana. Um, which has always felt a little cold to me somehow, a little inhuman. And then I learned that um, the word nirvana is related etymologically to another Sanskrit word, which refers to the state of 
coolness and rest that happens after a fever breaks. Mm-hmm. And suddenly that just made perfect sense to me. Ah, uh, that's nirvana. Nirvana is after the fever has broken, when things get calm and cool again. Um, and so when the Blue Cliff Record, when the koans talk about equanimity as nirvana, I think that's the sense that it, that it means. Um, that rest, that peace, after the, the grip of the fever, the, the constriction of the fever has gone. So I will um, stop there because of time. And then next week, I'd like to talk some more about some of the ways we've been working with equanimity, some of the, the ways we've expanded the sense of equanimity um, through our own experiences, which I, I think are pretty interesting. So maybe some things like we tend to think of equanimity as about how we relate to the things of the world and, and other people in the world, but what's it like to have equanimity toward the vastness? What's it like when equanimity moves in both directions, into the world and also um, into the vastness at the same time? And what, is, um, what if we think about equanimity not just as a, a quality in ourselves, but what is the equanimity of, of other beings? What is the equanimity? How do we see the equanimity of all things? What is the equanimity of the trees and the candles on the altar? So we'll take that up next week. Um, In the meantime, any comments or questions this week? Um, I'm very aware that I don't feel equanimity. I feel often... um, a lot of the time just carrying fear. Does that mean I'm not walking Um, How do you feel about the fear? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just am amazed it's there all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's something wrong. Does it have causes and conditions, the fear, or is it a kind of existential state? I Um, so a first thing to do might be to look at there's the fear and then there are the judgments you make about the fear so it's possible to have equanimity and to have um, to have an an agitated or or an activated state within equanimity that's being held by the equanimity and I think the beginning of the route for that is to dismantle the um, the commentaries we make about the feelings and the feelings that we have, that we shouldn't be having the feelings, you know, and it piles on and on and on and on, and we get further and further and further away from it. You know, you can you can have a fundamental state of equanimity, which comes back to something we've been talking about for a couple of years, which is another way of saying trust in your life. You can have a fundamental trust in your life and feel a fear or a grief, or an anger um, that's held in that. And it's almost like we want to get underneath those states that rise and fall like weather, even if they last a long time, they're still rising and falling like weather. It's like we want to get underneath those states and, and make a container that can hold them. And then whether we're feeling fear or sorrow or anger or whatever it is, 
becomes less important because it's in a context. It's not, it's not filling the universe anymore. It's being held by something. Is that, does that make sense? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, Jim, you talked about when you were thinking about the heart of practice being <clears throat> liberating the mind, which is love. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, I mean, I have, to, I have to give you my interpretation of what the Buddha meant by that. But um, I love the surprise of that, that the liberation of the mind isn't um, freedom from the world, you know, or perfect peace, or anything like that. It's love. And I think this goes, goes back to the sense that there's something... There's something, you know, fundamental about love, not only in our own heart-minds, but in the nature of things in the world. And it's the stuff that gets in the way that's a problem. And if we can liberate our mind, which is to say, if we can get rid of those obstacles and obscurations, we find that place where the love that is fundamental in us touches the love that is fundamental in the world, and it becomes continuous. And it becomes the kind of way we experience the world all the time, no matter what else is happening. And that's a deep liberation because, again, we get back to the sense of trusting our life and, and trusting life itself, not just our individual lives. Um, that to be able to rest there is a profound liberation. And that doesn't negate you know, tragedy and difficulty and horrors and all of that, but it says that um, we come to all of those things with a fundamental trust in life. And so we bring that trust to the difficult situation. We, we may bring our, our fear and our sorrow and our rage and all of that, but we also bring that trust. And that's huge, because the difference between bringing our sorrow and our rage and our fear, and bringing our sorrow, our rage, and our fear, and our trust, is like the difference between night and day. Mm-hmm. And it's a way that, that our liberation of our own heart and minds can contribute to the liberation of the world. When we keep bringing that trust along with everything else. So you just said liberation of our heart mind, which in a way makes more sense because talking about the process of liberation being um, attempt to remove obstacles. The obstacles aren't always in our mind, right? Right. But they are always in our heart mind, right. the complete continuum. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Which is, um, you know, which is why I think it's so important that Chinese move from talking about just the mind to talking about the heart mind always. Because yes, of course, it's it's all in that together.
the kind of understanding we can come to for ourselves is for ourselves. And, you know, the, to me, like the greatest spiritual sin is to impose that on someone else or project that on someone else or say that that has anything to do with anybody else at all. You know, that it's for us. And um, it doesn't, it, it says nothing about anybody else. Because um, to project it onto others, you know, to, to say that that applies to other people is this pure empty <coughs> which is really deadly. And so it has, that's why the liberation of the heart mind is love, you know, because it's love that keeps us connected to the actual circumstances of those people. If, if, if they discover that for themselves, that's grand, but I mean, we can never have an opinion about how anybody deals with hardship, you know, or catastrophe or any of the rest of that. You know, we, I mean, our, our fund, if, if we believe in the Bodhisattva way, our fundamental task is to do everything we can to create the circumstances for everybody, for everybody to liberate themselves. It's not about having an opinion about how they ought to feel or that we think that it doesn't matter because we're liberated. Our job is to create the circumstances for everybody to find it for themselves. And I think to go an inch beyond that is really, really dangerous. Because when we're alive, we're fully alive, you know? When we're alive, we fully care about life. When we're dead, we'll be fully dead and we'll fully care about death, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it, to, to say it's a continuum is not to water it down or say, bring everything down to some lowest common denominator where nothing matters. It's to say, it's so vivid right now being life. It's going to be so vivid right then being death. You know, let's be wherever we are. There's a, there's a, beautiful passage um, in case on another of the Koan commentaries where he says, and when you understand this, your eyes will shine in the dark. And I think of that in terms of that's how we'll be dead. When we're dead, our eyes will be shining in the dark. Mm-hmm. And that we'll be so dead. <laughs> we'll be so fully, you know, right out to the edges of our fingers dead. And right now, you know, we should be so fully alive for ourselves and for others. And to and to hope for the fully aliveness of, of everybody, for all beings. Okay, we should probably close anything that must be said before we close. Thank you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings, and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.